In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about acceptance and forgiveness as it relates to a body marked over many years by medical events. But before we get into today's episode, I want to plant a little idea in your heart. Have you begun writing your breast cancer stories yet? My hope is this podcast is inspiring you to put pen to paper, to use writing to make sense of your experience. But maybe that isn't quite enough. Maybe you need an assignment. I know all too well the motivation of a deadline, so I've got one for you. Wildfire Magazine's Identity and Aftermath issue is coming this winter. This is an issue in which we explore the mental health side of a breast cancer diagnosis. I want you to think about how you've changed since your diagnosis. Has the way in which you think of yourself in the world changed? What does the breast cancer aftermath look like for you? Pick a moment that illustrates this transformation and write about it. Send your submission in consideration for the Identity and Aftermath issue by October 25th. Find out more about our submission guidelines or join a writing workshop to get inspired prompts that lead you to your stories at wildfirecommunity.org. All right, on with our episode. When I was 12, over the course of a year, I broke a series of bones in my body. First, it was my right wrist falling off the monkey bars on the school playground one foggy morning when the bars were slick with condensation. Then it was my index finger while roller skating and using my hand and the carpeted wall instead of the rubber stopper on my skate to break my speed. And then a teacher stepped on my foot in band class and my toe broke. But the most humiliating bone that I broke that year happened during summer school. One afternoon, I got invited to play at Alicia Axelson's house. Her house was beautiful. It was this Mediterranean-style home tucked into the oak trees with sweeping views of the mountains. The walls were this bright white, and the tiles were terracotta and cool against my bare feet. But the best part of Alicia's house was the giant trampoline. Nowadays, it seems like every backyard has a trampoline, but when I was growing up, it was only the really lucky kids that got one, and I wasn't one of those kids yet. Later, my brothers and I did get a used one, but that wasn't for many years. On this particular day, in the summer between fifth and sixth grade, Alicia was the lucky kid, and she had invited me over to jump on her trampoline. Alicia and I bounced and enjoyed the thrill of shooting upward into the tree branches before coming back down to the soft black surface of the trampoline. I loved the weightless thrill of it, my hair floating up over my head, and the unpredictability of being bounced by someone else's bounce. Up and down, up and down. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of our jumping, Alicia did a flip. Bounce, curl, somersault in the air, landing on her feet grinning. 
I was enthralled. It looked so fun and easy. I wanted to try it. I had very limited trampoline experience, but a vast amount of pride, and I was used to my body doing whatever I wanted it to do athletically. So I got a few good bounces in and then tucked my chin and rolled. But instead of landing on my feet, as Alicia had done, I landed on my head. My chin burrowed deeply into my sternum. As I flattened out on the trampoline, I struggled to breathe. It was my first experience of having the wind knocked out of me, and I remember thinking, okay, so this is what it feels like to die. Alicia's parents and siblings gathered around me and helped me to lie on the couch, telling me I'd be fine in a moment once I caught my breath. I wasn't, though, and I was still lying there hours later when my mom came to get me. I didn't die that day. I could have broken my neck, of course, but that wasn't the bone that cracked. A chest x-ray showed that the source of my continued pain was a fractured sternum. At 12 years old, the worst part of that day was not the accident or lying on my friend's couch for hours. It was having to go to the ER and take off my shirt and have my chest poked and prodded. But that turned out to not even be the worst part. The next day, I had summer school, and a teacher I had never met before labeled me broken breastbone, BBB for short. For six weeks, I was called BBB by that teacher and several of my classmates. Until that point, I had felt proud of my body. It could do anything I asked of it. Just a month before, I had done 15 pull-ups, the most of anyone in my class, and earned the Presidential Fitness Award. Every time, my body and I were on the same team, a winning team. But the broken sternum and the subsequent nickname humiliated me. Although other bones had been breaking all year, I later learned I was growing really fast and needed more calcium to help my bones keep up. This one felt the most personal. By then, puberty was in full swing and breaking something with the word breast in it, being exposed to strangers at the ER, and then having the word taunted at me was a level of public embarrassment I had not yet experienced. I didn't blame Alicia or her trampoline. I didn't blame the doctors. I didn't even blame the teacher. I blamed my own body. It's taken me many years to learn my body has never been against me and even more years to forgive myself for blaming my body. In the world of breast cancer, we talk a lot about our relationships with our bodies, about how to live in them again after diagnosis. Today, we're going to search for some forgiveness within a body story. My guest today is Claire Millette. Claire is an acupuncturist and craniosacral therapist living in Boston, Massachusetts. Claire has been riding a six-year-long roller coaster ride of diagnoses and treatments, First diagnosed at 33 with stage 2 hormone-positive ductal breast cancer, Claire's now living with stage 4 inflammatory breast cancer. By the time she settled in Boston, Claire had been treated by three different teams in three different countries. This made Boston lucky team number four. Claire says every team eventually had to concede that she was a unique case and needed to be treated as such. It took two surprise diagnoses for her to stop moving so that she didn't have to train her new doctors. Since then, she's made Boston home and has learned to accept that her cancer is a chronic disease. She says this acceptance makes it so that even though the ride continues, the ups and downs are less extreme. Welcome to the burn, Claire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here too. So you are here to read a piece you wrote for Wildfire Magazine's 2022 body issue. This was our sixth annual body issue, and it's an issue in which we explore all the stories our bodies hold for us the stories they tell for us, and the ways in which they communicate on our behalf. And your story is called Body Map. So after you read, we'll chat. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's discussion. 
All right, Claire, I'll let you take it away. Body map. Transfixed, I stand in the doorway. For how long, I'm not sure. My feet feel glued to the floor. I take a deep breath, tighten the belt to my robe, and close my eyes. Exhaling, my foot finally releases, and I walk into the room. I pick this room for the large mirror leaning against the wall, the mirror I hauled into my house and lovingly placed in this space. I look up at the strand of fake orchids hanging from the top, the ones my sister sent me when I went for my first surgery. I want to look anywhere but at myself. I don't usually struggle to look at myself. I don't usually avoid mirrors or sneer at my own reflection, but today is different. Today I choose to look at myself with intention, to touch every scar, remember my story, and hopefully walk away feeling whole. Tossing a pillow on the floor, I take a deep breath and sit down. I'm surprised how hard it is to do this. I didn't know I held so much resistance. And yet, here I am, my breathing shallow, heart racing. I place my hands on my bare knees and look up. Meeting my own eyes, I see fear. Reaching out, letting my fingertips touch the surface, I watch my reflection mirror my movements. I steady my breath and begin my task. I move my hands first to my hair. Short and sassy, it's one of the best haircuts I've ever had. But I didn't choose this haircut because I wanted a fun change. I chose this cut because my hair was thinning, clumps falling out with every brush, with every shampoo, the meds showing their effects. I never lost my hair to chemo, so I never felt that true loss. And yet every time I took a shower and I looked at my hands holding a tangle of wet hair, I felt my stomach drop, my mind flashing forward, wondering if this is what it will be like. Will this be my experience at some point in the future? I run my hands through my hair now, turning from right to left and smile. In this case, the need to cut my hair helped me feel strong, powerful, and beautiful. I face the mirror once more and touch my face, tracing thinning eyebrows, bags under my eyes, acne scars, the contour of a slightly crooked mouth, a nose that is just too big. I look at myself and try to change the narrative. I see the arch of my brow, one of my features I always loved. I see the bags from fatigue and look up just a fraction into the hazel eyes that shift from green to brown and back again. I see the acne scars and remember how far I've come from the teenager I was. I glance at my crooked mouth, the one I got from one of my many surgeries, and I remind myself that part of my lip used to not move at all. And I move back to my nose, the just too big nose with a bulbous tip, and I remind myself that this nose lays on the face of my mother, my aunts, and my grandmother. This nose is a reflection of the women that came before me. I turn my head to the left. My hand moves down, tracing the scar running under my jaw. I feel the tightness along my neck and into my face. I feel the pull at the lip that doesn't quite move the same. It blends seamlessly at my jaw until it puckers at the midline, right under my chin. I look at this scar that runs all the way to my ear and remember the severity of the name, neck dissection. I remember the trauma of the surgery, the paralysis of the nerves, the relief of knowing they took the affected lymph nodes out. I also remember finding a new lymph node two weeks later, a small lump three inches below the new scar, and I remember the shock at how this was happening. I look up and see anger reflected back at me. Anger, the emotion I've made friends with over the past six years. I close my eyes, take a deep breath, and when I look back, the anger has shifted to resolve. 
Pulling the neck of the robe, I reveal my shoulders. I trace my collarbones, pausing at the scar at the center where they meet. It's almost two inches long, evidence of a removed skin metastases. The position of the scar flattens out the little dip that usually resides there. I remember feeling sad about that. I always thought that was a sexy little dip, a beautiful shape with the neighboring collarbones. I look at it today and also see the new growths, comically evident at the tips of the scar with two others sandwiched it from above and below. I turn my head to the left and see the other growth, the one that recently decided to show off and shine its true colors. These small lesions that look insignificant, but to me reflect the mountains I constantly climb. I place my hands on the belt and hesitate. Looking back into my eyes, I open my robe. I start slow, resting my fingers on my sternum. I run them over the small blue dot. One of the five tattoos I got last November to help the radiation team prepare for treatment to my liver. I move to my right breast, the real one. The breast that holds scars from the first surgery when they reduce it to match the other. The scar surrounds the nipple, now smaller than it was, then bisecting the breast to the fold, meeting the scar that runs along that same fold. I remember how worried I was about the way my body looked after that first surgery. I remember the tears in my eyes the first time I let a man see me, the care he took with me. I am so grateful to him to this day. I move to the left breast, a map of surgeries and scars from inflammatory cancer. This breast isn't real. It lies higher than the other, smooth and taut. The nipple is gone. This breast was taken in the second surgery. The implant lies under the muscle so that every time I flex, the skin puckers and folds. The rest of the skin is smooth but scarred, a topographical representation of the time my cancer became inflammatory and the whole breast was red and angry. I felt stabbing pain followed by raised skin and blisters. As I traced the scars, I noticed a surreal experience of not actually feeling the path my fingers make. The nurse cut in the second surgery left this breast numb. I slide my fingers to the side of the breast, feeling the slight elevation to my skin, a remnant of the surgery from my surprise diagnosis of melanoma. The scar runs from my breast down over my ribs, my Frankenstein scar, with a perfect white line flanked with white dots an extreme surgery for a small mole that was inconveniently found on the breast with no skin to spare. So they took it from my torso. The three-inch scar wrapping into my breast feels dramatic in its intrusiveness, so prominent you almost don't see the two small scars from the drains two surgeries ago. I move to the blue dot on my abdomen, straightening in an attempt to hide the folds. I am the heaviest I have ever been. When my treatment turned to blocking my hormones four years ago, the fatigue hit and my metabolism dropped. My life became sedentary. I leaned into emotional eating and the results reflect back to me. I work hard not to look away. There is nothing to like when I look at this part of me. I touch my belly and feel like it might be too much. Too much to process, accept, and let go. I take another of many breaths and choose to move on. I straighten so that I can see the last set of scars, three small peeking through, one at my belly button and two at my lower abdomen. So small you have to actively look for them. They are evidence of the latest surgery where they remove my ovaries. The parts of me I have been suppressing with drugs, stopping any evidence of hormones. I chose to remove them. 
I thought I could perhaps improve my quality of life by removing the need for one of the drugs in my regimen. This epic, permanent decision led to a surgery that was over in less than 10 minutes. Another surgery removing another part of me that is so strongly female. I flash back to being in the hospital with my hands resting just like this, saying goodbye to this part of me. My heart flutters. I drop my hands to my knees again, exhausted from the memories that have bombarded my mind. I check in, looking into my eyes once again. Eye contact takes me over the edge, tears falling, gliding down the scarred skin of my cheeks. I let them fall. I wrap my arms around myself and sink into this feeling, rocking back and forth. I let the pain leak out of my eyes, sobbing out the memories, feeling the tears splashing on my legs. Time passes and the quiet tears slow. My eyes are now poofy and red-lined, the green were evident. I feel drained and broken. I reflect back on the intention of this exercise and inch closer to the mirror. Placing my hands against it, I lean forward until all I can see are my eyes. Tuning out everything else, every scar, every marred part of my skin, every judgment. I stare into my own devastated eyes. More tears escape. I sit and breathe, holding hands with my reflection. Time is lost once more. My heart rate slows. My eyes shift from shattered to calm. I am lighter. The corners of my mouth lift slightly. I sit back and look at my body in its entirety. This body has been through so much. It carried me through every diagnosis, every surgery, every treatment. I look into my eyes and I am surprised by my reflection. There is pride there. I never thought to look at my body and see its power instead of its weakness. Most of my skin is unmarked, something I don't see as I focus on what I want to be different. And yet every mark is a story, my skin a map of where I've been and what I've been through. I lean forward, rest my forehead on the mirror and close my eyes. Reaching out, I hold my hands to my reflection once more and whisper a promise. I promise to remember that the map shows me more than the past six years. I promise to remember not only the times my body struggled, but also the times it thrived. The trepidation with which I walked into this room is gone. I let out another breath and feel my crooked lips smile. I open my eyes and look deeply into my reflection and see peace. Mm. That was so beautiful, Claire. Thank you so much for reading your story. I I'm I feel so lucky that I've gotten to hear you read it a couple of times now. And each time it opens up more things for me. So we'll take a quick break here, let you get a sip of water. We'll hear a testimonial. And when we come back, we'll chat. Hi, I'm Becky. I'm from Ontario, Canada. And I was diagnosed with stage two triple negative breast cancer at the age of 38. I've tried so many things to help me cope with and make sense of my cancer diagnosis, but nothing compares to putting my story down on paper and sharing it with the wildfire community. Thank you so much for the love, Becky. Thank you for that. Welcome back, Claire. I'm so excited to talk to you about your story. And again, thank you so much for reading it to us today. Thank you for so much for thank you so much for holding this space for me to read it. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a lot to read vulnerable stories like this in a setting like this. So I just want to really acknowledge 
what it, what it takes. Like, first of all, just to write something like this, but then to have to, I guess, own the words in a different way. It's a lot. So how, how is this for you? Like I said, it's your second time reading it recently Mm -hmm. to a group. How was it for you today? I think it's kind of amazing how the more I've read it out loud, the less it's like I've, I've cracked less. I've had less moments Mm of, it's almost like a, it becomes more of a story to tell as opposed to like a a release. It's like every time I've read it, there's been more and more releases. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really, it's really interesting to watch that experience unfold that way. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I think that's one of the healing aspects of writing a story is a realignment to how you feel about the story. It almost like shifts you to more of that observer role, which I know we've talked about in writing Mm -hmm. workshops before, but then I think as you repeatedly read it, like you said, it becomes a story that you're relating that, um, I don't know, it takes a different role I think as a storyteller to tell a story, to tell it in an engaging way, you know, you have inflection and you have pausing, there's something else going on than when you're just reliving, say a moment. So I think, yeah, hopefully this has been a very healing experience for you doing this. It has been, I think, honestly, with every writing workshop, with everything we've done, every time you write, it kind of is like a putting it out there and just like this beautiful release of emotion that you didn't realize you're holding on to. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Well, so when I was listening to you just read this, um, I was thinking about forgiveness and, and I kind of came into it thinking about forgiveness today, which was different than how I heard it from you before. And I'm not sure exactly why. I think I just was peeling another layer off that onion, but I'm wondering for you, did it feel like this event that you are describing this moment, this day when you decided to sit down in front of the mirror, did you feel going into it that it was going to be a ceremony of forgiveness or what did you, how did you arrive at that moment and how does it feel now? I think it was like this opportunity to kind of look at the whole and see everything that's been going on. Cause everything has been so constant for me to that. Like, you know, every new thing is this all encompassing and you kind of let go and you don't think about what's happened before. And so I think forgiveness is a big part of it. And I think we've mentioned this before, you know, seeing your body, as betraying you as not like, you know, you think you're doing all the right things and it's still going wrong. And every few months there's something else going on and writing this story kind of brought it all together in this one moment, um, which I don't think I'd ever done before. And it's like, it's like you said in the intro, it's like, it's been six years, over six years now, and it's still an active issue and it's still an active diagnosis. Um, And like I, you know, just rereading this story and remembering the promise I made at the end, which, you know, I think I mentioned this in the live, it's just like this moment where you're like, oh, okay, like, remember that there's more to you than what's happening in this moment. So, Mm -hmm. and forgiving your body and letting it be like, you know, it's not trying to kill me (laughs) Um, and that I'm not doing anything wrong and that I can, you know, only do the best I can. Yeah. And, uh. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. Well, it is. And I wonder if we can talk about anger for a minute because, (laughs) you know, I think it's an interesting thing because 
I think we're both laughing because anger comes up a lot in breast cancer. But, you know, I was thinking today about how we almost have to learn to feel our anger, I think, especially as women, because I know for my experience um, as a little girl, I was not taught that anger was okay. Like that was something you weren't supposed to express. So coming to this place with our bodies where we have to work through anger to get to something on the other side, you talked about it as resolve in your piece. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that, that experience of anger. Yeah. I think for me, what was really interesting is the first time I got diagnosed being a naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist, like I, I was like, you know, I understand the body in a special kind of way. I was like, I've got this. And I remember caretaking the people around me and everything was going in the right direction. And I still remember sitting in the office when I got diagnosed the second time, which was exactly a year later. Um, I remember just being pissed. I was like, I did all the things and I'm sitting here again. And it wasn't supposed to be like, and I just remember going from this, like, I've got this and I'm taking care of the people around me and I don't want them to feel overwhelmed by my own diagnosis. And by the end of it, I was like, I don't care what anyone else thinks. Like, I'm just pissed off at my body. I'm pissed off at mm. the situation. Like, how is this happening? And then it just kept happening, like diagnosis over diagnosis. And for me, I realized, you know, oh, it took time, but it was okay to just be angry sometimes. And honestly, the moments when I let myself feel those feelings, whether it was anger, devastation, sadness, and I, I let it let it happen was the faster I got past it. Right. Yeah. Because if I sat there and I just like pushed it down and pushed it down, it would explode at certain moments and it wasn't helping me any. And so I got to the point where I would get these days where I'm like, I'm not okay today. And I was like, okay, I'm going to like revel in it. I'm going to revel in the fact that I feel like, you know, I was going to be expletive. I was gonna feel like bad and I don't want to talk to anybody and I just want to be like pissed off and I want to like drown the world out. And when I let myself have those reveling moments and just like making it like, yes, I'm just going to own this feeling right now. Oftentimes I found that like the next day up to, or the day after that, I was like, I'm okay now. Like I'm okay. Cause I let myself feel those feelings. And so I think I went from anger and those anger still happened but I, by letting it happen and by just owning it, like I just managed to process easier for sure. Well, I'm so glad you brought up this, this, uh, reveling, as you said, you know, um, I think that's one of the first, uh, Claire hacks that I remember noticing from you, um, probably in a reel or something, you know, on Instagram. I just remember, I think you were in like a, I don't know, a Snuggie or something. And you were just on your couch and you're like, this is, this is the day that I'm having. And this is the permission I've given myself to have this day and feel these feelings. And I do remember you talking about in that, that then you could have the next day. It would, it would enable you to have a good day after that in this investment. And so I love that you brought that up. And, and I'm wondering if to you, so you feel the anger, which mm-hmm. leads to to resolve. Does resolve for you feel the same as acceptance or is there like multi-steps here? I guess for me, resolve feels like, you know, a drive, right? Like mm-hmm. to to keep moving forward and 
to not forget that there's things that I can do to help myself, that I'm not at the mercy of just taking the meds, that there are things I know, that there are things I can do, whether it's for mental health or for supporting my body. And because when I get into those places, I don't want to do anything. I don't want it to be on me anymore. I don't want to be the one fighting. I don't want to be the one arguing and trying to get what I need all the time. Yeah. And I think when I manage to move past it and it's resolve, it's kind of like, and I guess resolve is almost like, it sounds almost, it is acceptance. It's acceptance, but it's also like a push forward for me. And maybe I'm not mm -hmm. using the right word when I say resolve, but it is like that, like, all right, let's get to it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. no, I think it is the right word. Cause as you're describing it, it is the active part, the advocacy part, the, the showing up for yourself and having to fight that it is like, a. am picturing you like shifting down, you know, like, okay. I, and I'm going to take this hill. Whereas before you didn't have it in you. So you had to find that, and maybe I think you kind of answered my question too. Like acceptance is, um, it's a more passive, whereas resolve mm -hmm. is a more active, but they yeah. both live on the other side of letting yourself feel that anger. And yeah. I think that's a necessary piece. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Claire. Here we are. We've already blasted through <laughs> our episode together, but it was such a pleasure to have you on and talk with you. Will you yeah. tell um, people listening where they can learn more about you online or read more from you? Yeah, I, uh, I tend to do a daily gratitude and fool around on Instagram at uh, Clarified, which is C-L-A-I-R-Y-F-I-E-D. Um, but it's, yeah, it's an outlet for me. And so that you, they can find me there. I love it. She's got lots of tips. I love your cleaning <laughs> tips, especially. <laughs> I think I'm your biggest fan. So yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again, Claire. So today's writer and guest was Claire Millette. Her piece was called Body Map from the June-July 2022 issue of Wildfire called Body. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of, of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 38 issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing their stories. Finally, here is your writing prompt. This is a two-parter. Part one is to make a body timeline. I want you to draw a horizontal line on your paper and mark the date of your birth on the left and today's date on the right. Then, as the timer ticks down, begin to fill in the timeline with moments from your life when your body was hurting, as well as moments when your body impressed you with its strength, resilience, stamina, Mark as well other moments when maybe your body wasn't enough and you sought to fix it, correct it. As Claire did in her piece, you might find it useful to write with a mirror handy, using your scars as a reminder to all your body has endured. 
Your timeline might have exact dates from specific surgeries, or it might be more vague, like my story at the start of today's episode. Part two, pick a moment from your timeline and tell the story behind that event, that moment. Pick a moment that gives you a little zing. Maybe it's a zing of excitement, or maybe it's a little prick of fear or shame. That's how you know these are the stories that need to come out. Write for eight minutes on each part. Don't edit yourself. See what needs to come out. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.